0: Uh, Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to The Surge. Uh, We are going to talk about Palm Sunday this morning um, from the book of Matthew. Let me just read you a quick passage and we're going to jump in. So this is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on their cloaks, and He said on them, Most of the crowd spread their their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, We're going to talk about Palm Sunday in in a way that hopefully will be a little bit different. Famous philosopher Socrates used to say that the first job of philosophy was to, to actually stun people out of what they think they know, right? And so he, he actually compared himself to a fish, and the fish would actually stink people and make them numb. And he said, my, my first job is not to lead you to the truth. My first job is to tell you that you don't know what the truth is. And I think sometimes, sometimes God moves to shake us out of what we think we know. Uh, it's just the nature of people. Um, once we make an opinion about something, big or small, it's really hard to shake us off of that opinion. Cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, those are things. I mean, we, we watched it happen in this last election cycle. It doesn't matter what somebody says or does. <laughs> He's still our guy or she's still our girl. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's hard to shake us off of something once we make up our minds. But God, his love for us is so great. His love for us is so amazing that when he needs to push us forward, sometimes he needs to sting us a little bit. He needs to numb us up. He needs to shake us off of our preconceptions. And sometimes that can be pretty drastic. In the Passion Week, there may be no better example of God doing this than at this time. Lots of people had lots of ideas about Jesus in their head, even the disciples, the people who had lived with him for years, the people who knew him better than anybody, who ate with him, who spent time with him, who heard everything he said, who talked to him afterwards. (laughs) These guys, in this week, they didn't get it, and they were shaken to their core. Shaken to their core. Did you ever have plans that didn't work out? (laughs) Did you ever have a path for the future that didn't happen? Um, from the time I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, my, my plan was to be a college professor, so I went to college, and I dutifully got an English degree, fully intending to go get a master's degree, to go get a doctorate, to be a college professor, and all of the good professors I had, I'm, I'm with them after class going, okay, you're a really good teacher, I love what you're doing, how do I get to be where you are? And they say, well, you know, think about this and that and the other, and here's a good school for what you're thinking about, and here's a good school, and, and um, I'm talking to these guys, and I'm really gearing up for that. Um in the midst of that, right before I was about ready to graduate and pack off to some graduate school somewhere, I got married. And life kind of happened. She had some health problems. It's a long uh, story. I don't want to focus on this too much, but 22 surgeries (laughs) and countless days in the hospitals later, she died when I was 22. And it just kind of threw me off of my graduate school doctorate path. at that point, I had an English degree, which, you know, paper hat, you want fries with that. It's just not a very employable <laughs> degree, it turns out. It's, you know, it's like, it's like psychology, English, you know, and then, you know, in the, up in the stratosphere is engineering and, you know, science stuff. It's kind of, you know. So, yeah. So, I applied for a bunch of places, and like, everybody's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> and so, I eventually, you know, was kicking around with part-time jobs, and and I really felt God calling me in grieving to just, you know what, simplify your life down to nothing, <laughs> doesn't cost to live very much in Oklahoma, actually, I actually had a part-time job and was able to get by okay, and I just spent some time grieving, working a part-time job, writing a lot of music, and trying to figure out where I go from here. But at the tender age of 22, you know, my life was not on the path that I would kind of set for myself. You know? um, had an academic scholarship, things were going good, I was talking to my professors, I was doing well, and then all of a sudden, no family, no career, <laughs> you know, and I just felt lost. I just felt adrift. Reminded of the story of Jacob, he works for seven years to get to the girl that he loves, Rachel, and then he gets Leah instead. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, not what, was, not what I was planning for, not what I was working for, not what I was looking for surprise, right? Have you ever been there? Have you ever worked? Have you ever been on a path and all of a sudden you find yourself off of the path, dazed and confused, wondering what in the world happened? See, this is the lost thought of Easter. I mean, the message of Easter is clear. It's clear. It's good. It's celebratory. It's, it's really good. And, and it's this, things look really bad, but death gets clobbered by the power of God and that's good. Yay, <laughs> right? And yes, yes, that is the message of Easter. But there's another message in the Easter story that sometimes we forget. And that is that the script that God has for us is not the one we ever would have written for ourselves. The script that God has for us is not the one that we would have written ourselves. The followers of Christ in this week are about to get thrown for a loop, right? They're about to get thrown into the rubble of Jeremiah in Jerusalem. They're about to get thrown into the prison of Joseph. They're about to be Hosea coming home to an empty house and wondering what in the world just happened to them. They're getting ready to, even though they're the center of where God wants them to be, they're getting ready to enter a place of darkness, right? John of the cross about 800 years ago called it the dark night of the soul. It's a hard thing to have the will of God for your life, to see that clearly, to be on the path, to work hard to do it, And then to, in a moment, lose it, right? My life is not going to be what I thought it was going to be. It's a hard thing. But the hope of Palm Sunday, the hope of the Easter story is this. In that moment, if we can hang on, God is moving behind the scenes much more deeply than we realize. The thing that he has for us is so much better than our dreams and expectations. When things seem lost, when things seem lost, we are still in his hands. And I want to look at three things in this passage and challenge us to look at the Easter story with new eyes to see Easter differently than maybe we have before. And so the first thing is this um, it's a different steed, it's a different horse. (laughs) right? So the whole thing with laying down the cloaks and the palm branches, the victorious entry, at this time in history, this was the welcome, this was the traditional welcome of a conquering king. The general goes out, he's amazingly victorious, he does very well, he comes back into the city and he's honored with the ticker tape parade, and part of that was the palm branches and the cloaks laid before him. And make no mistake, the people doing this with Jesus, this was a political hope. It was a political hope, right? There was some bristling at the harsh rule of Rome here. Didn't really like Herod. They didn't really like Pilate. There was some hope that Israel was somehow, you know, through hooker by crook, about to rise to some level of prominence, that somehow Jesus and God would do, do their thing, and that the riches and influence that Israel had under Solomon might come again, right? And the disciples were clearly hoping for that too. Lord, when you do your thing and take over, can we sit next to you while you're, while you're ruling over the Roman, the Roman Empire? <laughs> and they were, they were looking for a king. All of the Jews were looking for Messiah to come as a political figure, to come as a king, to come as a ruler, to come as someone who would set up government <laughs> and rule in that way. Jesus did something else. And in America, we're, we're of two minds about, about kings, right? On, on the one hand, uh, in our stories, in our movies, in our fiction, in our video games, we love the idea of a king. We like the idea of a king. You know, when when Strider becomes Aragorn and becomes the lord of all middle earth, we're like, yo, yay, that's a good thing. We're happy about that. We love King Arthur. We love the round table. We love the idea of a king who will rule justly, someone who will come in and fix this mess, right? Someone who will come in and take charge and be king, we like the idea. Uh, On the other side, as Americans, (laughs) you know, you look through Revolutionary War memorabilia, you'll see a lot of signs saying something like, we serve no sovereign here. (laughs) You know, we don't need this stupid king. We'll we'll elect a guy for four years, and if we don't like him, we'll send him to bed without his supper, right? We'll, We'll boot him out of there. We don't like the idea of a king. And so we're of two minds about what it means to have a king in charge of our lives. There's a part of us that likes it. There's a part of us that really doesn't like it. And and, and here's the thing that we, we've got to come to the realization of. as In terms of how we order our lives, there is something that's in charge, right? There is something that's in charge. There's something that we all look to that orders our life, something that we look to to generate meaning. Maybe that's a career. Maybe that's a family. Maybe that's success in, in a certain way is something that we look to for meaning. I do this and I accomplish it and then I am a success. Then I'm okay. I attain this. My life has purpose and goodness. Whatever that thing is, that is your king. That is your king. It's that primary thing that orders our life, that gives us meaning that that we look to. and And there's no easy way to say it. <laughs> American hesitation aside, we can't know Jesus. We can't really know him unless we know him as king. But even as we make that realization, even as we understand that, God redirects us. Because the Victorian Roman general, the consul, the, the emperor coming into the city to the ticker tape parade, guess what he's not riding? He's not riding a donkey, right? He's not riding a colt. He's not riding a little pony. He's riding the biggest, most giant white horse you can find, right? He's riding the strider, the war beast that's snorting and spitting fire and, and is gigantic. He's coming in on an armored tank. He's not coming in on a little colt, right? Jesus is saying something really, really different. And the disciples had to be both elated and frustrated with him. It's like, finally, you're coming in as king. We're coming into Jerusalem. People are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. It's like the city's kind of rallying around you. This is the start. This is when it begins. We're finally, you've finally gotten with the program, Jesus. You've finally stopped kicking around Galilee. Now we're going to start the political campaign, and there's going to be a meteoric rise to power. And somehow, somehow, you're going to take over Rome. <laughs> we, we don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. It's going to be great. And we get courtside seats. This is going to fantastic. It's going to be really, really good. But then he orders up a little donkey. When they were thinking more of the, the big black SUVs with the bulletproof glass and the things and the flags, <laughs> he orders up a little, a little donkey cult. And they're like, Jesus, you've lost control of your message. We, we need an image consultant. This is not the direction that we're, we're wanting to go. And, and Jesus is like, no, no. <laughs> what I'm doing here is different. It's a different steed. 21.5 says this, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. He's coming humble. He's coming differently. He's coming mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's doing something different. He's doing something unexpected. He's doing something subversive to how we approach power, to how we approach conquest. And he's telling us by his action here to pay attention. The donkey, the little colt, is a different steed. The second thing here, and this is a complicated thought, and I'm going to fumble it, but but help me. I'll, I'll try to talk around it till I eventually get there, but there's a different control, a different way of leadership that Jesus is bringing to this situation. As Americans, and, and I, I've certainly felt this at times in my life, we are panicked by the idea that we're going to lose control of our lives. Panicked by the idea, right? And, and When you really take the idea of Christianity seriously, it's a scary moment. And the reason is this because Jesus is not a puppy that comes into our lives and he's warm and fuzzy and he's great and this is fun. I mean, Jesus loves us and there is is certainly affection, but Jesus also comes with shovels and rakes and implements of destruction to mess up your life and redirect it to a different direction to bring repentance away from what you're doing to something else. And the idea is that if we accept him as king and really accept him as king, put him fully into the driver's seat, we're afraid of what happens next. He's going to make you a vegetarian and send you to Africa, and oh, it's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And we, just, we, we imagine these things in our life that, that do not bring us joy, that make us afraid. We're afraid of what's going to happen. But there's a couple things to pay attention to. The first thing is this. Control largely is an illusion. Um, anybody who's been widowed knows this. <laughs> there's some things you just don't have control of in your life, right? Other people are free. Stuff happens. The job goes away through a round of layoffs. That's not your fault. The company moves a different direction. The other person in your marriage freaks out. And you can't control that. They leave. You can't control it. I mean, there's nothing that you can do. Other people can do things that we don't want to have happen. And ultimately, we don't control them. It causes traffic. causes local politics. All kinds of things that are just bothersome. Second thing is this. When it comes to control related to God over us, (laughs) we just have to know, we have to trust. We have to look at his character and know this. God is the most loving and gentle king possible. He's not a tyrant. He's just not. He doesn't manipulate us. He doesn't addict us. He doesn't trick us or position us or handle us to get us to do what he wants, (laughs) right? He talks to us. Like a loving father, leads us with a small, still voice. Look, Jesus, (laughs) he's the most patient manager, the most helpful boss ever to the most idiot employees you've ever seen, (laughs) right? He's incredibly patient with the dumb employees, with his team that's just all over the place. He's incredibly patient and good with them. The third thing is this. He doesn't let us abstain. (laughs) He doesn't let us not decide what to do with him as king. The way that he comes into Jerusalem as a conquering hero, the way that he draws attention to himself. I am, in fact, the son of God. Yep, you know, you got it right. Some of the things that he does, right? He kind of forces our hand to a decision. (laughs) He's the son of God. He he teaches in such a way that they're forced to commit one way or the other. Either crown him or kill him, and you got to pick one. And so they did. Right? And that's what the Passion Week, that's what the Passion Week is about. The other thing that's fascinating here, and this is something that I don't hear talked about a lot, but as someone who grew up on a farm, it's it's interesting to me. Um, there's a miracle here that we often skip over. Uh, that's the irony and miracle of riding an animal that's never been ridden before. I'd like to see you try to do it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's one of those things. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, and there was a, the rodeo was a thing, and we'd occasionally go. My favorite memory of the rodeo was this. Um, they were riding Broncos, which was a horse that had often never been ridden. and these guys were professionals, and they would have to stay on the horse for a certain number of seconds before they get chucked. Um, and so they announced the next horse. The horse's name—I'm <laughs> not kidding. Okay, up next we've got Satan. The horse's name was Satan. I'm going, ooh, that's probably not good. And, and what Satan would do—and it was pretty impressive—I saw Satan do this three or four times to the poor cowboys was trying to ride him. Satan had never been—Satan's never been ridden. It's like, yeah, huh? And so what Satan would do is that he would kind of walk out onto the thing. Like normally they would run and start bucking. He would walk calmly out onto the thing with a guy on his back. And then the horse, I'd never seen anything like this, the horse would literally jump about eight feet off the ground, about this high off the ground, and it would hold its legs completely stiff, and it would hit the ground with its legs stiff, and it would jar the rider so much that he's, he's completely off balance, and then the horse would go and just launch him, I mean, it would just, and would just buck like a, like a catapult, and would throw the guy 40 feet, I mean like he's over there flying through the air, you know, it's like broken bones soon to happen. And it watched him do it three or four times. He had a process, right? Satan had it down. Uh, here's the thing. We don't just get on an animal that's never been ridden before. They freak out. They, 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 they panic. They start, you know, frothing at the mouth. They start bucking and, and jumping and they start doing all kinds of things. Um, and there's a way that people get an animal to be ridden that's called breaking the animal. They assert their will in often not very gentle terms to get the horse to cut it out to where they can ride it. Jesus doesn't do that, right? He's both the creator and Lord of creation. And through the power of God, he just calms the animal. Just calms him and rides an unbroken colt through, (laughs) you know, add this to the mix, through a really loud and unruly crowd that are throwing stuff in front of the animal that would normally spook a donkey, but it doesn't in this case. It says something about The way that Jesus leads us. There's a real gentleness there. There's a real uh, (laughs) caring there. There's a real supernatural piece of it, and it's a wonderful picture of surrender. Because see, we think about losing control as a bad thing. We think of it as, you know, something that we never would do voluntarily. But control doesn't have to be evil. Control doesn't have to be bad. And it turns out that Jesus, God, is the only one who can control us without destroying us, right? Without breaking our will in this sort of way. I mean, think about it like this. God as king, but also as creator, made the world, and then he also made us to fit in the world. And so, us submitting to what God wants to do, us submitting to his control, is kind of like a fish out of water gasping for breath, dying, flopping around, submitting to being put back into the water, <laughs> right? That, that God's made a place for us and his control of us is to set us free, to be content, to be full of joy, to be in a place where we can thrive, to be in a place where we can live, right? It, it's, it's the control of a dad teaching a child to ride a bicycle, firmly holding on to the back seat. right? It's a level of control, but it's not manipulative. It's not holding the kid back, it's helping them so they don't get hurt. (laughs) It's guiding them. It's helping them do more, be more than they ever would have been otherwise, right? It's that guiding hand. It's control, but it's not a bad thing. The divine control, the different control that Christ brings to us is that kind of thing. And so, when we surrender, it's not a giving up of ourselves. It's plugging into ourselves in a way that makes us more than we ever would have been otherwise. He comes in on a different kind of steed. He comes in on a donkey. He comes in gently. He comes in with a different kind of control. He's not a manager. He's not a tyrant that drives us. He's a gentle shepherd who leads us. And it's something that we can, we can plug into and be okay with. We can be safe with God. The third thing is this. It's a different path to redemption. Jews were expecting Messiah, I said it before, to be a political figure. And for the first century kids, this meant an unexpected rise to prominence in Roman government that somehow I I can imagine when Satan was tempting Jesus and he's showing him the nations of the earth and saying, you know, I could just put you in charge of all this. Well, gosh, there was the Rome in the first century. I mean, it was all set up. The cards were on the table to do that, somehow make Jesus emperor. And can you imagine how much good he would get done? I mean, that would, I think it was a real temptation. Jesus as emperor instead of Nero, instead of Claudius, you know, it's like how much good could he have done in the earth? The, the wisdom, the compassion, the power that he would bring to that role would have been amazing. Would have been a golden age for the earth. Would have been. It's not what God was doing. He was coming, a different path to redemption. I mean, the, the whole Roman emperor thing seems like a good idea to me. That's how I would have written it. If, if I were writing the New Testament, you know, Jesus would have somehow become the thing and that would have been great. But God had a different plan. Instead, he comes as a humble teacher. <laughs> He's kicking around Galilee he doesn't enter Jerusalem on Abram's tank. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> Instead of kicking Herod and Pilate in the teeth with angels and flaming swords and lightning and car chases, he submits to them and often doesn't say anything at all to defend himself. Instead of waving his sand and literally crushing the Sanhedrin with the power of his mind and using his Jedi power, he doesn't do that. Instead, he allows himself to be arrested, <laughs> he allows himself to be tried in what was a kangaroo court. He allows himself to be unjustly convicted. He allows himself to be sentenced to die. God's path to redemption is not the one that we would have written. It's not the one that I would have written. It was Leah. It was not Rachel. It's not the path that we could see clearly, the one that we wanted. There was something else going on. It was, you know, burying the first wife at 22. It was not the fast track to doctrine and teaching position It was not to be the chair of the department. It was something else. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. God knows what he's doing. His plan in the earth to move Abraham's family from family to nation, where did it come from? It came primarily through Leah. She was the one who had 10 children, not two, right? She was the one who had uh, a son called Judah, which is where we get David and Solomon, Leah is the one in the line of Christ, not Rachel. God's plans, even though unexpected, even though it wouldn't be our first choice, it's not our plan A, God's plan, even though it seems weird at the time, is deep and mysterious and good, and he knows what he's doing. The very time that God seems like, that it seems to us that God's lost all control, all our plans and expectations derailed, those are the times that he's teaching us something amazing. And it's this to trust him. <laughs> he knows what he's doing more than we do. He has things under control beyond our ability to understand it. He teaches us in those times to see things differently. Last thing. There are three things we can do to help us kind of plug into these moments. First one is this. So three words. <laughs> First one is worship. See God as he truly is, not as we expect him to be. And sometimes that's hard, right? We, we all have a picture of God in our heads that's our default setting. For me, it's a giant old man with a beard on a throne and a thing. But often, that's not as conducive to seeing God as a loving father, to seeing him as a shepherd, to seeing him, something he's big and aloof, right? Majestic, to be sure, but often not close. And so in my, own, in my own default image of who God is, I have to let that bow to Scripture. I have to let worship lead me in a different direction to get a more complete picture of who God is, right? He's not coming on a charger with Excalibur. He's coming on a donkey. And sometimes the miracle is gentleness and not explosions. It's always surprising. It always inspires awe. It always humbles us. And it always leads us to something deeper. So worship. The second thing is this, obey. <laughs> obey. Especially when it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I have a strong-willed child, shocker. <laughs> She's absolutely wonderful. Um, but often I'll, I'll ask her to do something. and she will say, Dad, if you would just explain to me why I need to do it, then I will happily comply with your fatherly wishes. You know, I'm like, I'm like yeah, well, the reason why is because I'm in my 40s and you're eight, <laughs> and that's why, and that's why, go do with it, go do the thing. Some, sometimes we need to obey, even when we don't intellectually understand it, right? It's what obedience means. If I explain everything to her, and she, can, she consents with that, that's not obedience, that's agreement. That's coincidence. Well, that's, that's a good idea. I'll do that anyway, and that's not obedience, right? It's, it's only obedience when we don't fully understand what it is, when we trust the person who has authority in that situation, And we have to take that approach with God. We have to for it to work correctly. Listen, Jesus is not a buffet. We take what we like and we leave the rest. Jesus is not a consultant, right? He comes in and gives us some good advice and, well, I'll take that under advisement and I'm gonna go this way. Like, no, 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 no. Jesus is king. He's Lord. And sometimes we need to say, yep, I will do that even though it makes no sense to me at the time. If we can make that move, I promise you it will bless you in your life. If we approach him that way, (laughs) we will plug into a beauty and and into the power of the gospel of Christ in the way that we haven't seen before. Because of the way that he came on a donkey, the sacrifice that he made laying down completely, we know that he isn't here to abuse us. We know that he isn't here to take us in a bad direction. (laughs) Trust God and obey, even if you don't fully understand it mentally. Uh, The third thing is this. So, um, obey, worship expect. So the third thing is expect. When we lost the true king in the garden, the world broke. <laughs> it just broke. It snapped. Um, and while there are amazing and there are beautiful things in the earth, there really are, it's a shadow of what we'll get when creation comes back into the fold. When we line up with the king now, uh, the big part of what a life with Christ means is that we somehow start moving with the grain of the universe as God intended before it's fully here. And so expect things to happen that are amazing, big and small. (laughs) It doesn't mean we won't suffer. This is the prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean that everything will go our way. Sometimes God will, in the very center of his will, knock us off our horse to teach us something good. But it does mean that there is a power and an amazing plan that God has for us that often we don't plug into expect amazing things to happen. Pray big prayers. Line up. See what God is doing in a situation and don't be afraid to ask for something big. (laughs) Because sometimes in this complex script, God will set aside our simple plans and lead us to a power that many of us haven't seen. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us my heart this morning is that we will see, as a group, that we will see the gospel differently. That as we go through this week of the Passion and as we celebrate Easter, that we will look at the power and the love of God and the things that he's done with new eyes. That we'll see the leadership of Christ in a way that lets us say yes to it, in a way that we haven't before. When we do that, when we see the gospel differently, it will become joy to us in ways that are profound. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for everything that you've done, for everything that you're doing. And Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of your love on us, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would help us see you as king, but as a different king. That you would take our disappointments, the dreams that um, have been broken, have been frustrated, and that you would give us your dreams instead, and that you would lead us beyond our hopes to the thing that you want us to have, and let us see the amazing thing that what you have for us is even better. Lord, I pray that you would just still our hearts, that you would speak to the wounded here this morning, that you would speak to uh, the people that are doing fine, that you would lead us very much to a next step closer to you. And that you would uh, bless us, everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.